Okay, today is uh, December the 15th, 10 days till Christmas. Does that scare anybody? Um, remember, Sunday we're going to get here early to honor uh, Evelyn Estes's uh, 90th birthday. So I'm sure if you were 90, you'd like someone to come to your birthday. So let's do it. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. You know our standard operating procedure. Moment of silent prayer rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your word, for the opportunity to be here to study it. It's important that we remain faithful over the long haul, that we don't get distracted, that we keep our priorities straight. And we do that by continuing to feed upon your word and depending upon your grace. So we pray that you will help us to focus, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I forgot to say that we are not going to have Wednesday's young people class next Wednesday. And we will not have the CBC Friday night at the movies. Everybody's going around Christmasing. Can't hardly get them to church, much less the other things. <clears throat> so, we're going to jump right in tonight in James chapter 2, verse 20. Open your Bibles to James chapter 2. This is the most thorough study that I've done in James. I haven't really exegeted the book of James, uh, gone over it verse by verse. I'm getting close to that here, at least for some of these passages. I have addressed it several times, but I'm glad that I'm going over it in more detail now because I'm learning as I go things that are helpful to me, and that's good news for you because I pass that along to you, and you should be able to uh, glean some things that you can uh, use. <coughs> James chapter uh, 2, verse 20, we have the rebuttal to a straw man. One thing that makes people get a little bit uh, confused at this area is that we have James, who is the straw man, rebutting the straw man. He is the straw man, at least he's making the case. He, he brought up this argument because this is what the, the believers, the hearers of the word and not doers of the word, this is the argument they would make, so he made it for them. And we've gone through that. Now I hope that you have the wherewithal to explain uh, his argument, which is really their argument, to someone that would uh, maybe get confused. One reason understanding that argument is important because a lot of people will go to that argument to say, you see, the angels believe and they shudder. And they are trying to connect that with eternal salvation 
that supposedly that is what they're believing in and it didn't do them any good. So I ask you again tonight, what would you do if someone tried to make that argument to you if you were giving them the gospel and helping them to understand that salvation is faith alone in Christ alone? They say, well, yeah, it didn't help the angels. Look at the angels. They believed and they shuddered. What would be the first thing you do? All right. Now we're getting somewhere. You're going to ask him, well, what do you mean by that? What does that have to do with what James is talking about anyway? If you will do that, I can nearly guarantee you they are going to be caught off guard. Because nobody does that. Or a few do. They don't, it always uh, is a mystery to me why when these people who don't have the truth, they have a work system salvation, they've got nothing but bad news, and they try to foist it onto believers who do have the good news, and they'll make some kind of comment. They'll mention six words, faith without works is dead, or however many that is. And, they, and, they, and nobody calls them on it. Well, what are you talking about? What does that have to do with anything? And they will look like a deer caught in the lights because they, they've been used to just regurgitating something that someone told them, and that seems to do the trick. And when you turn it right back on them, you say, okay, so what? What does that mean? Chances are slim that they'll be able to articulate what they're even talking about. So if you can just remember to call them on that and ask them to explain what they mean, you may have already won the battle at that point because it, it just is hardly ever done. But it ought to be done all the time. <clears throat> so in verse 20, he is going to rebut this whole idea Remember, he is taking the position of the believers who are trying to excuse the fact that they are not applying the doctrine that they have learned. They are do-nothing, hearer-only believers. And they're trying to allege that there is no connection between faith and works. And where we start getting derailed is when we start thinking, oh yeah, well that's true. Well, it is true with regards to eternal life eternal salvation, but that was and never was and never is and never will be what James is talking about. He's talking about experiential faith, and he's saying they're claiming that their faith doesn't have anything to do with works. You don't have to have works. And now he's going to rebut that. Now, James chapter 2, verse 20 says, but are you willing to recognize who is he talking to? The straw man, the guy that made this ridiculous argument. Actually, he made it for him, and he's responding to that. What does he call him? You foolish fellow. That without works is useless. Do you not? Are you willing to recognize this? Look, and he's, he's saying they were arrogant. Are you willing to get down off your high horse and quit making excuses? Be humble enough to listen to the truth. Are you willing to do that? And he calls them foolish. Well, I guess James could do that. He had the authority. He could call them foolish. Paul called the Galatians, you stupid Galatians. What in the world has happened to you? You started out with grace and the Spirit, and now look at you, you're neck deep in works. I would not re recommend you to do that. When you're talking to someone and they're on a different page, the last thing I would do is call them foolish. You know what you do when you do that? You, know, you make them angry. You, they'll put up a brick wall. They don't want to listen to you anymore. 
They think it's a competition. You have insulted them, and they're not going to listen to anything you say. I, I will say this over and over. I think the best tact when someone makes a statement like this that you know is false is to play dumb. And for some of us, that's pretty easy to do. Uh, you mean, like I said, Columbo, uh, I, I don't understand. What do you mean by that? See, they can't feel threatened by that, can they? If you say, no, that's wrong, I'm going to straighten you out. Boom, steel ball, Psh, can't penetrate it. But if you look like you, you're really confused and you need enlightenment, aren't most people just at the ready to straighten you out anyway? I mean, this is what they would like to do. So when you do that and you question, I, I don't understand what this means, are you recognized, willing to recognize Foolish fellow, faith without works is dead. It's useless. Well, I said dead. Useless, we're going to see, is essentially a synonym for death here. James used strong language to refute the assertion of the objector or straw man. He still contends that faith, that would be doctrine in the soul, without works, application, is useless. He is still making the connection between faith and works to convict those believers who were not applying doctrine. And you're going to find... Trying to tread on an issue that is going to convict someone of a wrongdoing is not to be done lightly. And that's what he's doing. And that's essentially what we're doing when we are trying to evangelize, give the gospel witness to unbelievers because they have built their whole theology their worldview is based on their works. They've always believed this, and they always will as far as they're concerned. And our, no one is ever saved until they understand that their word works with regards to eternal salvation are absolutely worthless. And now James is telling them that your idea, your conviction, your belief stinketh. It's not right. You, you come up with this phony baloney idea about uh, demons believing and believers believing and they come out with different they believe the same thing but they come out with uh, different results so you think you've proven your case you haven't and now he's going get, to get into it now it is true that faith the faith one has in the gospel is invisible and does not automatically produce good works you understand that that's really important to understand that it does not automatically produce good works. There are some, uh, any Reformed believer will be quick to say that if you are, listen to this adverb, truly saved, then you're going to have the works because they're automatic. And Mike, what would you do if somebody said that? What is the first thing you're going to do? They just said something false, didn't they? So are you going to jump on their case and straighten them out or are you going to ask them a question? Oh, Really, I'm confused because if that's the case, why is the Bible always exhorting us unto good works? Why is it always warning us that we better do these things or else we're going to suffer the consequences? That's what James is doing. Why would all that be there if the works are automatic anyway? And why would there be rewards for believers who do good works if everybody does them anyway and they're automatic? These are some of the things we need to think about to challenge somebody that comes up with this kind of claptrap. The 
the faith we have at salvation, eternal salvation, does not automatically produce good works. But that does not mean that there is no connection between faith and works. That would be application of doctrine that should flow from it. In other words, when you have faith in Christ, when you accept the gospel, God does a lot of things for you. We call them uh, assets. We have all kinds of spiritual assets that God accomplishes for us at the moment of salvation. The only problem is hardly anyone, if anyone, knows this when they believe in Christ. They don't know all the things that go on. These things are not felt and they're not seen by other people. So how do we know? How can I stand before you and confidently say that we have all these spiritual assets at salvation? You can't feel them. You can't see them. Other people can't see them. How do we know they take place? Because that's what the Word says. You have eternal life. I can't see it. You have God's righteousness. And I certainly can't see that. Maybe sometimes. So how do we know? Because the Bible tells us so. That's how we know. So from that, from that, the 40 plus things that God does for us at the point of salvation, which are permanent... They don't depend upon us. They depend upon Him. That's why they're permanent. Because of all these things, we would naturally think that there would be a works, a gratitude, a, a, a faithfulness that should flow from that. Would that not be reasonable to expect? And that is reasonable. Where is it? Is it in Romans that he says it's our, our Hebrews? It's our reasonable duty, our reasonable service? Romans 12.1? It's our reasonable service? And you think that this would be reasonable, and it is. But here's the thing. Listen to this. It is not automatic. You know why it's not automatic? Because our volition, volition is involved. That's the rub. So these things should be flowing from this, but it's not necessarily the case. In the former case, this would be one that is saved from eternal life or saved from eternal damnation. Um, In other words, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you're eternally saved. You will not go to hell. And it doesn't matter whether you produce any works or not. Are we all on board with that? Okay. But in the latter, and with regards to what happens after salvation, uh, we are delivered from divine discipline only if we produce good works. Are you on board with that? This is where people miss the boat. They think, okay, I understand the salvation part. I understand that when I believe... I don't have to do any good works and I'm still going to heaven. That's eternal security, doctrine of unlimited atonement. I got all that down. That's fine. But where the great majority of believers miss the boat is that they don't understand this last part. If a person, if a believer does not produce good works, then he is in danger. He's in danger of divine discipline. He's in danger of losing eternal rewards. He's in danger of living a useless, fruitless, faithless life 
He will go through life confused, bitter, angry, and then at the end of his life, he's going to die to sin unto death, which is a just a, a someone in panic just jumping out in the dark. That's what death is for them. So it is important, but you have to distinguish between the two. So this time James says that faith without works is useless. By the way, the King James Version says dead there, which is another way of saying that faith without works is dead in verse 17. Now here is a quote from volume 4 of the Southern Baptist Journal of Theology. He says, quote, The term useless is composed of the negative prefix A. You know, that's, we call that the uh, alpha negative, and the alpha, the A in front of something in the Greek, many times will make it negative. Like if you have uh, pistis, that's, uh, or let's say you have theos, that's God. If you have atheos, that's not God. And that's what we call an atheist, person that does not believe in God. So this alpha here attached to the root uh, word, which is aragon here, which means work. So you have uh, aragon is what it would be, but it's not exactly that. But the result is the adjective argos, the, the A changes the, the, the spelling of the aragon. So you have argos that appears in the text as arge, A-R-G-E. Thus we have a pun. It's saying essentially faith without works is workless. Are useless. You see what I'm saying? I know you don't get it. You would see it in the Greek. But what this actually is saying, that faith without works is workless. I see y'all are excited about that. Okay, here's a wrong interpretation. Now, this is a theologian. Look, where, look at this quote. I want to just show you. This is pretty neat. Do you see this, where I got this quote? Volume 4, Southern Baptist Journal of Theology. Okay? And it's a good quote. I just, it's, it's good. But now look at this. This is a wrong interpretation, and it stinketh. And look where I got it. Volume 4, Southern Baptist Journal of Theology. Uh, Robert H. Stein. It's the, well, it's the same, it's from the same article. So what I'm, what I'm, the point I'm making is sometimes, especially, I don't suspect y'all are going to go into these theological journals and dig through them like I do. Well, some of us will, yeah. A couple of us will. But uh, it's just to show you that uh, sometimes you'll find something that's really neat in it, and then on the very next paragraph it might be something right out of the tulip. And so that's what we have here. So in that same journal we have this, wrong interpretation. Now this, uh, I'm sure he's a doctor, Dr. Stein, has a Ph.D., uh, knows the original languages, and he's, he's been published and all this. But with all that said, look how, how far he's missed what's going on in here in James. He says, quote, In opposition to a real or hypothetical opponent, James has sought to demonstrate that a person is saved by a faith that is life-changing and accompanied by acts of loving kindness. Mere intellectual assent to theological propositions, even if correct, is insufficient because it rises no higher than demonic faith. See, he's made the wrong conclusion there too. According to uh, James and Paul, a man is saved by faith alone, 
But the faith that saved is not alone. It is followed by good works which prove the vitality of that faith. Now let me tell you, I can't hardly read that without holding my nose. Because this is exactly what so many people think, and it could be further from the truth. In fact, this idea of the faith that saves is not, al- is not alone. Uh, well, excuse me. According to uh, a man is saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. I've got a book. I've got a book that thick just over that phrase right there. And it's ridiculous. It sounds good, but it's contradictory. And this is what you hear the Reformed people say. This is what some of the people that are into um, the work salvation crowd. They say, yeah, the faith, faith that, the faith that saves is alone. Uh, salvation is by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And that is just as contradictory as it can be. It's just trying to tell you that you need works in order to be saved. And he's, this whole thing is highlighting, it's, it's assuming that James is talking about eternal salvation. Remember we went through that whole chapter 1? We went through chapter 2? And then you have a theologian like this that writes theological papers and he doesn't get it. May the Lord open our eyes to the truth. If you're not grace-oriented, if you start out with a a meta-narrative, which is a fancy way of saying a worldview that is anti-grace, it's a works-based idea, you come up with this kind of nonsense. I don't know if you got exercised about that, but I did. That's why I put it in it, so you can see. Now, this guy is articulate. He can express himself. And that's what makes it so bad, I guess, is because you really understand what he's saying. A lot of people would sign on to that, but they wouldn't be able to express it that way. The vitality or strength of faith one has in accepting the gospel is never, 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 never the issue. It's not about your, the quantity, quality of faith or anything else. It's always about the object of faith. So forget that, and yet that's what everybody tries to make it. It is the object of faith that matters. However, the life that one lives after he is saved does have a direct bearing on the vitality and strength of his faith. That is, the body of doctrine that he has. A dead, useless faith produces no works, whereas, whereas a vibrant faith does. Now, to this group, I don't, I don't even have to stop here and go in to what the difference between good works are, divine good works, and what useless works are, dead works. Right? I don't have to go into that. We, we already know when we're talking about works that are acceptable by God that, we, that should flow from the faith that we had at salvation. We're talking about work that is done by a believer, good works, while he is filled with the Holy Spirit is the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit that not only motivates him to do it, but to do it and help him do whatever he's going to do that is considered a good work. This we understand. But that kind of work, those kind of good, the the divine good, does not come from a dead faith. And we're talking about the faith one has after salvation in the Word. In the next three verses, James 
uses illustrations to prove his point. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Now what would you say, just right off the cuff, is that, would the answer to that be yes or no? What would you say? It would be yes. Because, listen, get, get that idea about eternal life, about salvific salvation, out of your mind. Just lock it in a safe. Throw away the key when you're reading James because it doesn't have anything to do with this. If you hesitated, then you hadn't done that yet. You need to forget about eternal salvation when you're reading James. That's not germane. It's not even the issue. So if you took that aside and you understood he's not talking about that, then you'd be quick to say, of course, this is true. He was justified. But what we're going to see is that there's two kinds of justification. James is talking about being justified before man. Paul's talking about being justified before God. One, Paul's kind of justification requires faith alone. And James' kind of justification requires what? Works. Justified before man. So he says James' rebuttal is designed to prove that faith was surely visible through the works of Abraham. The only way to see faith is through works. To merely talk our faith is useless to meet practical needs, which is what he just gave the illustration of. Y'all all agree with that? You can, you can talk the talk. You can use the vocabulary and you can talk to the cows come home about how great your faith is. And it means nada. What matters, what demonstrates your faith, is what? Works. Something that somebody can see. Because nobody can see the faith that you had at salvation. And even your behavior doesn't have any bearing on that. Oh, boy, some people would take me to task over that. If we had a group here of... If you just went out and took a, a swath of people and brought them in here off the street and I made a statement like that, they would have the pitchforks and axes ready for me. I dare you say that. Of course you can tell if somebody's saved or not by their behavior. And my answer to them would be, Oh, really? The, the faith one has when he accepts the gospel is invisible. But the faith he has in Bible doctrine is visible because it's manifested through works. Only a lazy believer who had no works and was trying to make excuses would try to deny this connection. James declares that Abraham was experientially justified before men and God when he willingly offered up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. That's what James is saying. His original faith in God had developed over time to a vibrant faith that produced a good work that was visible to anyone. To presume that he was also positionally justified before God by his good work is heresy. The idea that there is one justification that comes by faith plus works is a big, fat lie. And that's what everybody wants to try to make it. The truth is, is that there are two types of justification, one positional, one experiential. One does not demand work, and the other one does. That's not hard. 
But you tell it to somebody that has not been initiated into grace or anything about positional experiential types of salvation and justification, then what? They don't know what you're they don't know what it's about. Romans chapter three, verse twenty eight. This should, this this is this is interesting. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And this is positionally it's talking about. Is this not contradicting what James says? No, it's not. Because they're not talking about the same thing. Look at Romans chapter 4, verse 2 through 6. And in your Bibles in James, I want you to write right by uh, that verse 22. Uh, verse 21, excuse me. By verse 21, I want you to wrote, write in your margin Romans 4, 2 through 6. This is what Romans 4, 2 through 6 says. See, if you know this verse and somebody's trying to make a case that you have to have add works to your faith at salvation, or if they're trying to make, make that case and they go to James, then you can say, well, I'm confused. Let's turn to Romans chapter 4, verse 2. It says, For if Abraham was justified by works, and this is talking about, this is Paul speaking, and we would say positionally justified by works. In other words, it's saying when Abraham believed the gospel and he was justified by his works in order to be justified before God, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. See? What do we do? We come before God empty-handed, don't we? Boy, when I was in the Baptist church, I must have heard just as I am five billion times. Boy, did I ever get that. I understood. You don't bring anything good. You, here I am, warts and all. That's how you come to God. And this is what essentially uh, is saying here. You don't bring good works to God. He said, verse 3, for what does the Scripture say? And then he's quoting Genesis 15, 6. Are you all in Romans 4? Okay. He says, for what does the Scripture say? And then what we ought to be asking all the time? Huh? What, what Paul is doing here? He makes an assertion. And it's not a correct assertion. So what does he do? He says, what do the Scripture say? And he goes to Genesis 15, 6. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 4. Now, if the one who works, that is to get to heaven, if one who works to get to heaven, his wage is not credited as a favor, that would be grace, but what is due. Now, to the one who works to get to heaven, you got that? His, his wage or the result of that isn't credited as grace, but what is due. If you go to your boss and you say, uh, you know, I'd like to start being paid not on what is due, but by grace. What do you think you're going to say? Think he'd understand that? Think he'd go along with that? I don't think so. I know you're going to pay me what is due, but I'd rather you pay me on the basis of grace. So I'm not going to show up next week, but I want you to still pay me because then that would be with grace. Verse 5, but to the one... Who, oh, here's our verse. Here's our memory verse right here. But to the one who, what? Does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith alone 
is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from the works of the law. Is that hard to understand? You see why this verse is so powerful and why I want you all to carry it around in your soul so that you can pull it out when someone suggests that you have to work for salvation. Well, I'm confused. I don't understand because, you know, Romans 4 or 5 says that to the one who does not work but believes on him justifies the ungodly, his work is credited, his faith is credited as righteousness. And you said that it is. Can you, under, can you explain that to me? You see how that works? You're not arguing with them. You're asking them, help me. You're telling me something. I'm trying to accept it, but it doesn't jive with this verse. Can you enlighten me? Can they enlighten you? No. Actually, you are enlightening them. Work has nothing to do with Abraham being justified before God on the basis of his faith. Now listen to this. However, the phrase, look at this in your Bible, he has something to boast about but not before God. Do you see that? What does that suggest? It strongly suggests that Paul knew of another sense in which one could be justified by works, but certainly not for eternal salvation. How about that? Huh? Look at the verse again. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But he says, but not before God. This suggests that he would have something to boast about by producing good works, but not before God. He understands another justification. You see it right there. Paul is not clashing with James. Paul's Paul addresses positional justification while James addresses experiential sanctification. The first illustration used a person that everybody was familiar with. He's, given, he's going to give you two. This is Abraham. He's also going to go to Rahab. And the timing in this is critical because when you read James, what is he talking about? He's talking about when Abraham was going to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice. And what some would suggest, if they're thinking about it salvifically, this is when, when he was justified before God, salvifically, because he, he was willing to sacrifice James. I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying it's wrong. But this is the way people's mind goes. So if you look at it, the timing of what is spoken about, what this is about, then it explains it. It's critical. Here's Genesis chapter 22, verse 9 through 10. Now, we're talking about, up here in James chapter 2, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Okay, we go to Genesis chapter 22, verse 9 through 10, and it gives, gives us the account. This is telling us what's happening. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. He was being obedient to God. He was, can you imagine what that must have took? 
He was a hundred years old before he had a son from his own loins. He loved him with a love that is, you can't, it's nearly unimaginable how much he must have loved his son. And God says, okay, I want you to go to this place and I want you to sacrifice him to me. What is it that motivated Abraham to do it? He believed God. He believed that he didn't know that God was going to stop him, but he knew if he did plunge that dagger into his beloved son's chest, God was going to resurrect him. That is, that is the supreme test. And he passed it. The reason he passed it was because he believed the doctrine. What did God give Abraham for obediently being willing to offer up his son? Did he give him eternal life? No. Perfect righteousness? No. We're going to see he already had that. Genesis twenty-two fifteen verses uh, uh, 22, 15 through 18 says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed. What I have underlined is what he is going to receive for being obedient. I will be, uh, multiply your seed as the stars are uh, of the heavens, and as they're on the sea, they're going to be in the oh, And your seed, his seed, your enemies. And your seed, all there is talking about the seed of the because you have obeyed my voice. Or imputed righteousness from the So James chapter 2, verse 4, God, in order to secure eternal life, now was Abraham back. Then he, and he, this was which is what James was referring to. By works, but hang on. You can't tell in the English, but you can tell in the Greek. So, here's the morphology of the word. The word, I want you to write this word there. It's M N. In Genesis 15:6, then he believed. He perfectly continue. God Abraham, what is known as the Abrahamic covenant, and that's where it says in Genesis 15:6 that he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to righteous, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Did he get righteousness recommended to him, imputed to him, because he believed God's promise then? No, that's not what it says. And that's what you conclude in the English, but that's not what it says. It should say, then he, Abraham, had believed in the past. With the results continuing, he stayed saved, still had eternal life, God's righteousness. And I think the interesting thing here is the reason that saying that he had believed in Genesis 15:6, right after God gave him the promise, he did believe the promise. But this is saying the reason he believed the promise is because he had already been imputed with God's eternal life, uh, God's righteousness and eternal life. And what should flow from that is a continuing belief and trust in God which occurred when he received the Abrahamic covenant.
Yes. That's what it's talking about. Yeah. You see, oh, I was getting, I was going to finish this word, but see, no, no, I need to explain that. Um, when it says he had believed, he had believed in the Lord and the Lord reckoned it, credited it, imputed it to him as righteousness. That's not when he received the Abrahamic covenant. It's just saying it that this had already done and this is the basis of which he received all these great things from God. When was that? That's when God knocked on his door in Ur of the Chaldees and said, I want you to go to a place that you know not of and don't take your family and let's take all, let's go. That's when he believed in God. That's what this is talking about. So not only in James when he's talking about when he entered Isaac, when he was going to sacrifice Isaac's son, that's when he, he was uh, justified before men. It wasn't when he was justified before God. It wasn't then in Genesis 22. It wasn't back in Genesis 15, 6 when he received the Abrahamic covenant and believed it. That's good. You've got to go all the way back to Genesis 12 to get that. How many people know that? I mean, I don't say that so you can strut about and crow. But God expects us to rightly divide the word of truth. These kind of things aren't being taught to people. So when it comes to the theology, it's an inch deep and a mile wide. They don't have any. And yet this is what God expects of us. This is how we connect the dots and can boldly say, James isn't saying that Abraham was saved, eternally saved, when he... Uh, when he was going to sacrifice Isaac. He wasn't saved eternally when he believed the, the Abrahamic covenant. He was saved back in Ur. Ur. ur ur I think it's Ur. Ur of the Chaldees. Ur, yeah. <laughs> now remember, this occurred 30 years before the incident in Genesis 22:10. Okay, so aman is the perfect tense. It means to regard something as trustworthy, to believe in a thing, a word, or a person. The perfect tense denotes an action that has taken place in the past with ongoing result. This means that Abraham did not receive God's imputed righteousness for believing the promise that God had just given him, known as the Abrahamic covenant. No, Abraham had believed the Lord way back when he was still an uncircumcised Gentile living in Ur, and his name was Abram. He believed God's promise and left his home country to go to a land he knew nothing about. So when he was willing to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22 was not when he was saved and positionally justified before God. Nor did it occur when he believed God's promise in Genesis 15. He was saved when he believed God in Ur of the Chaldees. This is in Genesis 12. Here it is now, James 2.22. I don't know if y'all are ready for James 2.22. Huh? How do y'all feel? Huh? How much concentration you got left in you? Do we need to review what we just did? Michael.
Yeah. I need to get this to you. People can't hear you. Uh, uh, Greg in here. Uh, I'm going to say something right now because you hit on something, and maybe I'll close with this so that y'all, I don't want to go into 222 because it takes fresh batteries to get this, I believe. Um, when, when you see the works, verse 22, when you see faith was working with his works, and as a result, works, result of the works, faith was perfected. One thing that we have to get aside is that this is not talking about morality. These works are not talking about being moral and considered a good work and therefore you are going to be justified by your morality. A lot of people think that. Now, I'm not saying that morality is a bad thing. In fact, it should be understood that Christians are going to be moral. The thing is, you can be moral and not even be a Christian. Morality is not part of the spiritual life, if it, at least not in, in one sense, it may be. But if unbelievers can be moral, then the works that it's talking, be, talking about has to be something more than morality or else the unbelievers would be qualifying for, to be justified. And Michael, you just, you just touched on it. When Abraham decided to offer up his son, it wasn't a moral issue. It was an issue of him understanding God through the Word, through doctrine, and applying that doctrine. And that is the good works that are acceptable. Those are the ones that you can be justified by. It's not just being a good person. It has to do with learning doctrine, applying doctrine under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that is what justifies you. Don't want anybody going away with thinking, well, I'm going to be a better person. You can be the best person that ever took a breath, and if, you are not, if it's not an application of doctrine, it doesn't mean squat. Okay? I was... <laughs> I was going to lay that on you. I said I was trying not to lay anything heavy on you right here at the end, and that's exactly what I did. Isn't it? I'll bring that up again next time because it's worth uh, mentioning again. Because somebody hearing this on maybe on the internet might think, "Oh boy, I got to be a better person." Well, uh, th that's an admirable goal, but it's not going to justify you before man. It's not going to be what God is is wanting you to get to that experiential sanctification and justification. It's not experiential righteousness that you have the potential of producing. That's of a spiritual nature. That has to be connected to doctrine. And it is that body of doctrine, which James is calling faith, that must be applied. That's the works. And when you have that, then you are going to be justified not only before God but by man also. And it's going to result in work, I mean uh, rewards. And you're not going to get discipline, which is a big goal for some of us. Okay. Uh, we're going to close now. By the way, any questions, anything before? I was listening to a pastor. i got a pastor friend of mine up in uh, Austin area, uh, Bob Bolander. And nearly all of his Bible classes, he ends 
by asking people, anybody, if they had any, any questions. Probably is a good idea because if you were lost somewhere along the way, um, <clears throat> it would be nice to tidy up the loose ends at the end. <laughs> okay, uh, 24 words or less. Okay, shoot. Only beloved son. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he already had Ishmael, but that wasn't... I, I said it was the only son through his loins. Yeah. He had a son. Well, I, I, that's not right. I said by his loins. He did have another son by his loins. should be by Sarah. He only That was the promised son. Right. I'll have to look back at that and see. Uh, but it was the son. You could say it was the son that counted with regards to God's faithfulness. Okay, let's close. Father, thank you for this time. We realize that this is a difficult, difficult area of Scripture. But it's critical for us to understand it, to be able to articulate it, to be able to tell others in our own words what James is saying. Because so few people know the difference between a positional justification that takes place at the gospel and an experiential justification that God expects of us, provides for us to uh, produce. And without that distinction, people get off course. So we pray that you will help us to meditate on these things, be ready to stand firm for the faith. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.